This podcast is marketing material for a South Africa investment professional only. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining our monthly Global Markets Perspective podcast. My name is Philip Robotham. I'm delighted to be joined by Hugo Montrucio, Head of Multi-Asset Investments for Europe, based in London. Ciao, Hugo. Um, I hope you've had a great Northern Hemisphere summer. Hi, Phil. Nice to be with you. And uh, yes, although in the UK, the weather wasn't as hot as in the rest of the world. (laughs) Yeah, it hasn't been great down here either, but we'll we'll have to have you down here soon enough and you can uh, you can experience it again. For more information on any of the topics discussed on this podcast, please don't hesitate to contact your usual Schroeder's representative. We're going to spend the next 15 minutes discussing what's happening in global markets, focusing on the key investment themes, framing the investable landscape. So with that in mind, not everything has gone to plan this year. Uh, the most widely publicized global recession hasn't happened. Uh, Global equity markets have continued to march on in the main. Uh, MSCI World, looking at the ACWI, both currently uh, representing double-digit returns for for this year. Uh, Growth in the US is continuing. Consumers have been surprisingly resilient. Uh, Central bank policy continues to write headlines, etc. Hugo, this paints a difficult backdrop for investors going for growth whilst being mindful, obviously, of their risk budget. So if we start with this elephant in the room, are you still expecting a global recession? And why hasn't this materialized? That's a fantastic question, Phil. <clears throat> and I wish I had a precise answer to that. I can I can offer two uh, hypotheses to address the question as for why we haven't seen what we expected to be a recession this year. The first hypothesis is quite optimistic. And it it basically speaks of uh, global economies that are far more resilient and insulate from interest rate changes than what every economist in the street would have expected. So the thesis there goes that um, even if um, we have seen an unprecedented increase in um, interest rates, the economies are actually less dependent on interest rates than what they used to be in the past. And therefore, this transmission mechanism take longer. And therefore, what we expected to be a quick onset of a recession as then passed by. So that, that's the first optimistic view. The second view, which I think is uh, probably more accurate in determining what has happened, is that we have truly lived through unprecedented times. We often say that in financial markets, but what if you look back at the last three years, lots of things have been unnormal. And one of those has been the incredible amount of fiscal stimulus that was unleashed by different uh, fiscal authorities around the world, coupled with extremely benign interest rate policies. Typically, the two, monetary and fiscal policies, tend to go in opposite direction to countervail each other. But in this particular circumstance, we had this enormous fiscal stimulus with an enormous monetary stimulus alongside. And what the results of that was, was that excess savings on consumers' current accounts exploded. And many commentators, many uh, scholars and economists actually fail to observe how large this pool of excess savings, particularly in the US, but also for the rest of the world, has been through the um, 2020 episode. And so what that meant was that consumers were starting the year in a much better position than what we thought they were. And 
this much better position meant that they could absorb much more easily the increased in cost that firms found, found themselves naturally gravitating, you know, in, in terms of uh, placing additional cost because of the inflationary wave we were experiencing. So again, in a typical environment, big increase in inflation, prices will go up, and these increasing prices will be met with lower demand. But because of what we lived through the pandemic and the amount of excess saving to start with, the two forces naturally offset each other. Now, to, to wrap this long argument down, uh, our expectation at the moment is that these excess savings are rapidly coming to an end. And our estimate is that by early 2024, we would be in the same situation we were before the pandemic. If that judgment is right, I do expect that next year we will be discussing of much greater attrition coming from interest rates. And therefore, I still hold the view that in the second half of 24, uh, the economy will contract uh, also in the US. I liked it uh, at the beginning with your optimism, but uh, completely agree <laughs> with your uh, completely agree with your uh, realism. Well, with that in mind and focusing on, um, I suppose, the Fed rates at the moment, do you think wages are coming down fast enough for the Fed to back off with raising rates on the on the on the shorter term, considering what you've just said about expectations for H224? I think so. I think there are multiple signs that uh, the labor market is stabilizing. It is stabilizing from the perspective of the percentage of workers that are looking to change job, which typically tends to be a leading indicator on the employment figure uh, itself. It is stabilizing in terms of the participation rate. Let's not forget that one of the problems that the US have experienced uh, from the pandemic was that a large number of uh, workers disappeared from the workforce and never made it back. And now if you look at the numbers of the total workforce, the numbers are actually showing much more participation than what we used to have last year, for example. So I think that the, the wage pressures will diminish or will be you know, manageable from the perspective of the Federal Reserve. The real questions for 2024 will be what is the level of unemployment that the Federal Reserve is willing to digest at the point where inflation may be above their targets. It's easy for them to talk hawkish and keep monetary policy very tight in a world where uh, unemployment is as low as it is now around three and a half percent. But if unemployment were to increase next year, I think the trade-off for the central banks will become a lot harder to digest. Okay, great stuff. And for those that are interested, we're recording this on the 18th of September. So the Fijians have just beaten Australia. Um, and I'm keen to ask your expectations, Ugo, for for Q4, considering we're just over a week and a, a week or so away from the beginning of Q4 23, given this um, background that you've just painted, when federal interest rates are around five and a half percent, the ECB is at four, the Bank of England is at 5.25 with this stubborn inflation figure. So I, I think in, in an analogy, I think we are we've almost reached the final station. The monetary train left the station two years ago, and I think it's got to uh, its final stop now. I think we have seen the peak of rates in Europe. Uh, I'm highly confident about it. I, I still think that there is a fair chance that we may have another one uh, in the US, not at this meeting, but perhaps in November, uh, and perhaps two more in the UK. But in general, I think as we look at Q4 and beyond, I think from now on, the question will not be, 
how many more hikes we see, but how long central banks will stay where they are. And that's a really important call to make. And the answer to that call will likely depend on how quickly the degradation in economic activity will happen as we go into 24. So using an analogy that the Bank of England chief economist used when he was in South Africa recently, we are looking at a table mountain profile of rates. So rates being high and elevated for quite some period of time, but how long exactly that period of time will last is uh, very dependent on how quickly uh, the economic momentum vanish next year. Fantastic. And thank you for bringing in the beautiful mountain uh, that we are blessed to be looking at looking at on a daily basis down here. That brings me into a question I was saving for later, but seems pertinent now. What's priced into the bond market's rate curve currently, given your expectations on potential cuts later next year? or I, I, I think you said the end of November this year, you expect the final Fed rate potential increase. What, what's priced in at the moment? So that's a great question. So I think if you look at the United States, the market is divided um, as per whether the Federal Reserve will need or not to hike once more this year. And I think looking at the latest data, we are hovering around the probability between 30 and 40 percent for November and virtually almost zero probability for a hike now in uh, in September. I think the real question that we would have to ask ourselves is whether whether or not we will see uh, rates cuts next year. The market um, is still sanguine about that scenario. Um, we are, the market still expects three um, cuts um, coming in the second half of next year. And I'm, I'm interested in, in that sense to look at what the Federal Reserve will tell us now in September. September is a month when uh, the cent- that central bank publishes their own estimates for, um, for the year ahead in terms of where they think economic policy will go in general. And during the last projection they had in June, they were foreseeing four interest rate cuts in 24. So I'm very curious now that we have had three more months of data Inflation has fallen, but perhaps not as fast as some commentators were expecting, whether this judgment of four cuts will actually stay or not. I personally think that uh, next year we will see some cuts, but not as much as the market now would want to believe. Great stuff. So before we turn to investing in this environment, my my final question on on background and macro was going to be China-centric. Do you think that China can derail the global economy or do you expect it to be more impactful on their bordering um, economies and you know, Asian equity market risk, for example? Yeah, and the latter, I would say. Um, so does China have a real economic problem at the moment? Yes. What is the scale of that problem? Hard to tell with precision. If you look on the inflation side, China is almost fighting disinflation. Uh, at the moment, growth is anemic and nowhere near where the policymakers would want it to be. but. Uh, the chances of China exporting a global crisis at this point, in my mind, are quite limited. One thing that the, um, the the leadership is very aware of is social stability and avoiding social unrest. And my presumption is that if the situation on the economic front were to deteriorate further, policy stimulus of some shape or form, particularly directed at stabilizing the property market, will very likely uh, ensue. And at the moment, the, the sentiment around China is extremely pessimistic. 
every every investors is either left the country, every foreign investor, or has reduced materially their holdings. And typically, when you are in a situation of excess pessimism, even for the local market, I think some opportunities of stabilization um, arrive. So China is still in a difficult economic framework, but the chances of China becoming a, a big domino um, effect to the rest of the world, in my opinion, are not very high either. So then leading on to um, the opportunities that you're seeing in the current environment, given you've painted a pretty negative outlook for, for global markets leading into next year, that's a very difficult backdrop. Um, wh- where are you seeing opportunities in global equity markets? Yeah, so I, I, I don't want to sound excessively pessimistic at, at this point. Uh, I need to be realistic. I think the, the distinction that we need to make as investor now hinges on what horizon we are looking at. If we are taking an investment horizon of six months or perhaps nine months, arguably the situation is not as bad as I would have expected it to be a few months ago. Um, valuations in certain parts of the world U.S. in particular, have become more expensive, but they are expensive for a reason, simply that the economy has been doing much better than what anticipated. Earnings um, expectations have uh, ticked a bit higher recently, but they're not aggressive, I would say. So I would say if we have a look at uh, the next six months, opportunities in equities still exist. I prefer to, to have exposure to equities in the United States or in Japan, which are two markets where leading indicators are still suggesting that the economy is is going okay. What I'm more worried is in Europe, where valuations are already cheaper, but economic momentum is rapidly decaying. So for equities, I would say at the moment, we, we prefer to position ourselves on markets where we have, we have more evidence that um, the economy is still doing well, and we have underweight markets where that doesn't seem to be the case. And on the other asset class that we favor at the moment, moving slightly away from equities, but staying on the cyclical assets, we have a large exposure to um, commodities, which we like within within the group. There are lots of supply-driven reasons why uh, commodities seem to be well supported at the moment, particularly on, on the energy side. But if you take the judgment and you extrapolate it a bit uh, more widely to equities, one natural harbor for that view is actually energy stocks, which we also like. And we like them you know, across the globe and in the US in particular. So equities selectively, I would say, commodities quite broadly, and then energy sector in particular could be good ideas for the next six months. Thank you, Hugo. And, and f- following the rise in yields in the fixed income market, where are you finding opportunities there? So I think government bonds will be the big trade of 2024, giving you some forward guidance, Phil. Um, at the moment, we are still neutral on, on bonds. And the reason why we are neutral is that their uh, safety versus equity, their, their negative correlation versus equities has not proven as strong and vigorous as it used to be. So in absence of big negative correlation where bonds perform when equities don't and and vice versa, and negative carry, which is caused by the fact that term structures of interest rates are negatively um, sloping, meaning front-end rates for short maturities are higher than long-term bonds. These two factors, the, the not great diversification aspect and the fact that there is a negative carry which means that you end up paying for owning a bond at the moment means that we are neutral on government bonds but next year i think government bonds once we have evidence that the economy economy is lowering in general 
I think they will come back with a vengeance. Where we look for income at the moment is more on the higher quality part of credit. And in particular, Europe looks to be in a very good uh, sweet spot. Spreads level are higher than uh, in the US. And if the economic momentum um, gradually slows, but doesn't go off a cliff, I think the valuation we have at the moment are quite interesting, particularly for dollar investor who have the ability to hedge the currency and pick up an additional yield from that. Fantastic. And then just to conclude, then, um, it would be shameful of me sat in an emerging market to not ask you about emerging markets. Do you have any identified opportunities in EM at the moment, Hugo? So to some some degree, top down, it's hard to distinguish the emerging market views versus um, the China views. And I acknowledge that this uh, very simplifying com- uh, comment neglects the the subtleties of different markets. South Africa is very different from China for a variety of reasons, for example. Um, I started the comment by saying that I don't think China poses a tail risk to the rest of the world. And I do think that Chinese valuation per se at the moment are so depressed that they can potentially offer some opportunity for rebound. So with China in that position, in the rest of the world, commodity producers, in my opinion, should be uh, well bid. I think in general, emerging markets benefit from higher growth. And so uh, medium term, I think valuations are not cheap enough uh, for me to uh, to be willing to take a big exposure in those markets. But again, selectively, uh, I think there are lots of opportunities. And on fixed income market, in local markets in particular, there are lots of you know, ideas that are at the moment quite interesting. Uh, inflation has become a much lesser problem in emerging market than what it used to be. Most of the central banks uh, have started to reduce the cost of interest rates. Look at Brazil as an example. So I think on the bond side, there are good opportunities. On the equity side, I would prefer to play um, developed markets at this point. Fantastic, Hugo. Thank you very much indeed uh, for your time and, and your efforts today to our listeners. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to engaging with you further in the remainder of 2023. Uh, Clearly, caution is is apparent and obvious, but there are opportunities available, strength, fundamentals, specific sectors, and we're looking forward to the coming back with a vengeance of government bonds in 2024. Hugo, arrivederci. Thank you very much for having me, Phil. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance and may not be repeated. Schroeder's Investment Management Limited is an authorized financial services provider. FSP number 48998, registration number 01893220, incorporated in England and Wales. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation. Any funds, services or products mentioned might not be appropriate for all listeners. Please speak to a financial advisor if you are unsure as to the suitability of any investment. The forecasts included are not guaranteed. They are provided only as at the date of issue and should not be relied upon. Our forecasts are based on our own assumptions which may change. We accept no responsibility for any errors of fact or opinion and assume no obligation to provide you with any changes to our assumptions or forecasts. Forecasts and assumptions may be affected by external economic or other factors. 
Disclosures and risk factors. Collective investment schemes are generally medium to long-term investments. The value of participatory interest or the investments may go down as well as up. Past performance is not necessarily a guide to future performance. Collective investment schemes are traded at ruling prices and can engage in borrowing and script lending. A schedule of fees and charges and maximum commissions is available on request from the manager. The manager does not provide any guarantee either with respect to the capital or the return of a portfolio. The manager has a right to close the portfolio to new investors in order to manage it more efficiently in accordance with its mandate.